Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. Hey, podcast listeners. This is Greg Dalton. You're listening to our new C1 Review, a podcast connecting highlights from three shows. Thanks for joining our conversation. This is Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future. I'm Greg Dalton. Today we're looking at what cheap oil means for America and the climate that supports the economy. The reduction in oil price generally is a marvelous boon. I think it adds something like $40 billion to our GDP. But we're also seeing the new low prices lead to a surge in demand for SUVs again. Ideas are bubbling up for how to help our pocketbooks and protect the land, air, and oceans at the same time. One way is to pay for emitting carbon pollution. If we think that policies are coming on climate change, putting a price on carbon is the most cost-effective, the most efficient, the most direct way to do this. Up next on Climate One. Climate One is changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Greg Dalton. These Climate One conversations were recorded before a live audience at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan public forum in San Francisco. Low gas prices are pumping up sales of SUVs and trucks, and for the first time in a decade, Americans drove more miles last year than the year before. Since transportation accounts for almost a third of America's greenhouse gases, that's bad news for the climate. We'll start today by taking a look at the idea of pricing carbon. Everyone from oil companies to environmentalists are talking about what might happen if consumers paid the real price for coal and gasoline. Some think it just might boost the economy while also trimming carbon pollution. I'm joined by three people who've been thinking about putting a price tag on carbon that comes out of tailpipes and smokestacks. Lou Alstad is a former executive vice president of Mobile Oil. Today, he's a member of the Citizens Climate Lobby, a group advocating for a fee and dividend carbon law. Angus Gillespie is vice president for CO2 at Shell Oil Company, and he rides a bike to work. Mary Nichols is California's top carbon cop and an advisor to Governor Jerry Brown. Her formal title is Chair of the California Air Resources Board. In 2013, she was on Time Magazine's list of the 100 most influential people in the world. Here's our conversation about cars and carbon. Climate One. 
Angus Gillespie, Bloomberg Businessweek recently wrote that on paper, Shell appears to be one of the most progressive oil giants on climate. Your CEO, Ben Van Buren, has said we're not aligning ourselves with climate skeptics. So what are you doing to sort of differentiate yourself from other oil companies and say that climate is real, we need to do something about it? We do actively call for a strong price on carbon. We do actively call for the need for gas to replace coal in power generation. Shell, I believe, was one of the first to come out and say we recognise climate change. We accept the fact the majority causes man-made. There has to be a solution. And what that implies is the need for an energy transition. But we can't rush into something that has an immediate effect but then has no legs commercially to stay in place. So it's making sure that some of the solutions that are chosen are durable and they make sense technically and commercially. Lou Alstad. Most of the oil companies seem to be looking to heavy-duty technical engineering solutions or mitigations, where I think the right place to be looking is at renewable energy, solar, wind, other forms, and we need to incentivize a way to get there. And to my thinking, the best way to do that is a revenue-neutral carbon fee with a dividend, all the proceeds going out to households around the country so that people see the closer to the real cost of the energy that they're consuming. Mary Nichols. But then the question is, okay, so how much does that price have to be before it's worth your while to start really promoting some alternatives or changing your product? There are two big factors on the financial side when you look at project economics. One is the size of what a carbon fee might be, and the other is when it takes place. Some companies have done a reasonable job at talking about carbon fees, $40 up to 80 is what I'm hearing. Most of them appear to be far enough out in the future that they don't really impact project economics today. When the financial community realizes that they have to think about closer-in financial impacts, they're going to start really discounting the value of some of these fossil fuel companies. The investors starting to realize how significant a risk climate change can be to their investment stock. Now, this is a type of thing that starts to get real action because once senior executives see the impact on the stock price, then you know, real activity, long-term activity really starts to take traction. The United Kingdom central banker Mark Carney recently wrote that the majority of proven oil, coal, and gas reserves may be unburnable. That's a central banker in the UK. That's not an environmentalist saying that. So how is that rippling through the industry? They're starting to realize, well, this is not Greenpeace talking. I always remember someone in the UK government saying that you know you're making traction when this issue moves from the Department of the Environment to the Treasury. And what you're seeing is this issue is now becoming a Treasury issue, so it's getting more buy-in, and it's easier for industry and commerce to pick up and act on it. How does this play out? When does the market realize it? They're starting to realize it now. People are divesting and reinvesting. I've sold all of my ExxonMobil stock, and I've been reinvesting in renewables. Angus Gillespie, what percentage of Shell capital expenditures today go toward renewable energy? Is it more or less than 1%? I do know the numbers, but you know the line here. If I told you, you'd need to shoot me. I thought you'd shoot me. Yeah. (laughs) Either way, I'd like the first one better. Um, It's billions of dollars. So again, definition. Per, per year or cumulatively? 
So Shell invested $12 billion in a joint venture into Brazilian sugarcane ethanol. So far, we're the only oil company that's put that amount of serious money in biofuel production. So we're committed. We're in for the long term. We still have a large wind business, predominantly in um, the US. We've been in and out of solar on various occasions because this is always the challenge. When you're a commercial company, you have to find a commercial return to protect the business. And solar has gone through various cycles, and it's genuine money. It's in the tens of billions of dollars that Shell's invested in this area. Mary Nichols, are oil companies serious about renewables? Or is it more just marketing and and greenwashing? I think Shell is making an investment that's real. It's not uh, just to be ignored or or just for window dressing. At the same time, until the rate of return on those investments comes up to be parallel with producing oil and gas, it's never going to be anything other than sort of a a side project. Lou Alstad. The reason it doesn't make as much money is because the dirty stuff doesn't have full costs associated with it. The cost of droughts, the cost of forest fires, the cost of pumping out subways in New York City, and more to come if we don't do something about climate. What we need is some way to internalize those costs so that people see the true cost of fossil fuels when they go to the pump or when they pay their heating bill. One way to get at that is to put on a carbon fee so that people see the cost. We're talking about energy and cars at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. My guests are Lou Alstadt, former executive vice president of Mobile Oil, Angus Gillespie, vice president for CO2 at Shell Oil Company, and Mary Nichols is chair of the California Air Resources Board. You can follow the conversation on Twitter and listen to podcasts in the iTunes store by searching for Climate One. Mary Nichols, what do you see coming from Washington? Well, President Obama is using his executive authority very uh, assertively to force EPA and other parts of the administration to take some meaningful actions. They are currently working on a set of regulations that will require existing power plants to reduce the amount of greenhouse gas emissions that they're responsible for. And that regulation, although they can't do it directly, indirectly will have the effect of putting a price on carbon and giving the utilities more of an incentive to invest in renewable. Um, He has already uh, put down his marker on vehicle emissions from the light-duty passenger vehicles, and they're now working on a proposal that will affect the new truck and other heavy engines as well. Nobody that I know predicts that Congress is going to find a way to do anything on greenhouse gases anytime soon. That doesn't mean that California has to change our course. We're steady on, and we're talking more and more to other states, particularly the Pacific West, but also our colleagues in the Northeast, and increasingly to other regions in the world as attention more and more gets focused on how the world as a whole is going to put a cap on emissions that are ultimately going to have to be dealt with on a global basis. Is this happening fast enough in correlation with what scientists say needs to happen? The IPCC, that UN scientists said that we need to get off fossil fuels completely by the end of the century or face severe, pervasive, and irreversible impacts. Angus Gillespie, is it happening fast enough? I don't think things are moving quickly enough. You have to get started because we found, on average, it takes 30 years, three zero, 30 years to go from zero to get a 1% share of the market. Lou Alstadt, carbon capture and sequestration, these kind of magical sponges that suck uh, carbon <laughs> out, out of smokestacks and other places, it's talked about, but it doesn't really exist yet. 
It's expensive, adds almost double, 80% on top, something like that, just to try to suck out the carbon. Then you also have the problem what you do with the carbon dioxide once you've got it. So it's a ways to go, and an awful lot to bet your future on that one particular technology. But if these magical sponges don't materialize, what does that mean for the fossil fuel industry? That seems to be their one, they need that to save their bacon. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Luke. Um, So what happens if we don't have carbon capture and storage? And you're right, Lou, a commercially acceptable cost. I think what happens then is the focus has to be on large-scale electricity storage. When you go into a future where supply is determined by the weather, you have to have either a very flexible demand or a way of storing electricity, a battery that's gigawatts in size. So for me, it's fossil fuels with carbon capture and storage, or it's a completely renewables future, but it has to have large-scale energy storage, which I think, if you think carbon capture and storage is difficult, my goodness, you try storing electricity at that rate. Yeah, the electrons like to move. There's a lot of people in Silicon Valley making big bets. A lot of wealth will be created for people who can get that right. We're talking about fuels and climate at Climate One. Let's go to our audience question. Welcome. Hi, my name is Wayne Roth. Uh, Lester Brown from the World Policy Institute puts a price on carbon of $200 per ton. How soon can we do this? We have very little time. Many people think that we have maybe 10 years at best to really get off of carbon seriously. So we need to somehow make a sacrifice, all of us. Thank you. Lou Alstad. The early description of the Citizens Climate Lobby approach was to put about $15 a ton on and then go up $10 a ton a year. One of the benefits of doing that is that businesses have the certainty of knowing that the cost of carbon is going to keep going up, and that pushes them to move faster into alternatives, either efficiencies, renewable energy, doing things differently. But that certainty that it's going up, cost is going to be more and more each year, will push people faster. Let's go to our next question on Climate One. The southern countries that haven't, so-called southern countries, that haven't gotten wealthy developing on cheap energy, they maintain the right to do so. And even if a few countries pass a carbon tax, won't Shell and other companies be forced to sell to developing countries? Is there really any way to prevent all the oil and coal from being used? If you put a fee on carbon, and if you put a border adjustment so that imported hydrocarbons have the same fee as you'd have in the States, then the other side, the developing countries that want to do business with the U.S. or any other country that has this kind of a system, would actually have an incentive to put their own carbon fee in so that they're not paying it when they get here. They're collecting it themselves. The developing world is not all dependent yet on petroleum. Many countries don't have any of it and do have other resources, and it is going to be incumbent, I think, on the wealthier countries to assist them in that effort. A lot of what we hope for in California by being early movers in this field is to help demonstrate technologies that can be adapted and used in other parts of the world, which will be a benefit for our entrepreneurs and inventors, and it will also hopefully assist other places in avoiding going through some of the cycles. We have been discussing carbon fees and carbon capture with Lou Alstad 
former oil executive, now with Citizens Climate Lobby, Angus Gillespie, vice president for CO2 at Shell Oil Company, and Mary Nichols, an advisor to California Governor Jerry Brown. You're listening to Climate One. Oil prices are always a roller coaster, but when prices plunged last year, many experts were caught off guard. This time around, the energy economy is undergoing some fundamental changes. What do those changes mean for American drivers and American companies? What do they mean for petrostates such as Iran and Russia and wannabes like Cuba? This segment will also touch on fossil fuel divestment, the Canadian tar sands, and more. Here to discuss all that are three experts. Jason Bordoff is director of the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. He's also a former special advisor to President Obama. Kate Gordon is senior policy advisor to Risky Business, a group chaired by former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg and former U.S. Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson. And Bill Riley is a former board member of ConocoPhillips and was head of the EPA under the first President Bush. Today, he's a senior advisor to TPG Capital, a private equity firm. Here's our conversation about cheap gasoline. Bill Riley, 10 years ago, the consensus view in the U.S. energy industry was that demand would go up and supply would go down for U.S. fossil fuel production. What really happened? (laughs) If you look at the world energy situation, there are three demand areas, basically the United States, Europe, and China. Economies have slowed in both China and in Europe. In the United States, something has happened which I think is really very, very significant. We leveled off in terms of vehicle miles traveled. Now, there are more of us, there are more cars that are being sold, but at the same time, we're driving less. And um, that has profound consequences, I think, for the future. So we're going to see a continuing reduction in demand. In fact, if the 54.5 mile per gallon fuel efficiency requirement is maintained, and I expect it will be, the analysis indicates that will reduce by more than 2 million barrels a day consumption in the United States. Uh, You can look at then the supply and realize that a lot of countries have shale gas that have not developed it yet. I think they will find ways to develop it. And um, once that happens, it's very possible that we could see a cascade of new supply at the same time as we see a decline in demand. And we will then, I think see the oil price follow the gas price, the natural gas price in the United States, which is trending down. Jason Burroff, there's one other change that happened in the last 10 years, this big shift in U.S. energy, global energy, is that <coughs> consumers have become producers and producers have become consumers. So uh, sketch that out for us, what that means. We're, we're seeing really historic shifts. So the places we thought of as the producers of oil, uh, the Middle East, Venezuela, uh, these are rapidly growing uh, demand centers. Uh, Africa, and obviously Nigeria is a major producer. At the same time, the places that we thought of as being the major consumers of energy, and the U.S. by far is you know, the leader in this, but Canada too and some other places, are now where the vast majority of the supply growth has come from over the last several years. U.S. oil production is up 4 million barrels a day since 2008, I think. Uh, that's a staggering turnaround in U.S oil production. Kate Gordon? It's not just about production and demand. It's also, as we know from Katrina, about extreme events. It's about political instability. There's a number of things that affect these markets. Overall, for the U.S. economy, Bill Riley, low gas prices put 
cash in the pockets of American consumers and drivers and a lot of other industries, except for the oil industry, benefit from this. Isn't that right? The reduction in oil price generally is a marvelous boon. I think it adds something like $40 billion to our our, uh, GDP. And uh, there's so many industries which are uh, benefiting from it. Chemicals, because of the raw materials that chemical companies depend on to a disproportionate amount being oil. Um, The aluminum industry, uh, anything that involves travel, recreational industries. Oil is such a fundamental commodity in so many industries and so many areas of life. But we're also seeing, um, unfortunately, the new low prices lead to a surge in demand for SUVs again in, in vehicles that use more, more gas. Kate Gordon. So the key to me for policymakers and consumers is keeping our eyes on uh, policies that do reduce that vulnerability to volatility. So whether that's pushing electric vehicles, uh, getting upgrades to vehicles that are newer and more efficient. There's lots of people driving 25-year or older cars, which are huge smog contributors, as well as being incredibly inefficient. So thinking about those transitions to new models of driving and to getting ourselves away from this model of having one kind of engine and one kind of fuel is incredibly important. Jason Bordoff, will car makers move away from gas-sipping cars and start, are we going to see the return of the Hummer? Car makers respond to consumer demand. So uh, if consumers decide that you know, cheaper gasoline uh, is here to stay, you're going to consume a little bit more. You're going to drive a little bit more. Maybe you make a different choice about what kind of car you would buy. That's why I think policy is so important. And I think what prevents us from returning to the Hummer is the fact that we have aggressive fuel economy standards. Jason Bordoff, let's talk about the geopolitics of the low oil prices. How has that affected Russia, Iran, and U.S. interests? What it means for other countries like, uh, you know, Russia combined with sanctions, the low oil price has meant that the ruble has fallen uh, by half. We've had about $150 billion of capital flight from the country, severe economic pressure on that country. Whether it brings Putin to the negotiating table and to pull back aggressive actions in Ukraine remains to be seen. We see, unfortunately, things going in the opposite direction. And I think countries like Venezuela and Nigeria don't get talked about enough because of what the oil price collapse could mean for real chaos in those countries. Venezuela was already in an economic uh, downward spiral, uh, and the ability for lost oil revenue to mean that that country really falls into economic collapse. Same with Nigeria. And what the spillover effects would be for Venezuela's support of fuel subsidies and the Petrocrib program through the Caribbean, or Nigeria's ability to fight Boko Haram and terrorism. There could be a lot of worrisome spillover effects as a result of the oil price collapse. Does it strengthen the U.S.? U.S. hand with regard to Iran? Uh, Potentially. Iran is selling a million, a million and a half barrels a day less oil than it otherwise would, not just because of the threat of sanctions, but because of aggressive diplomacy on the part of the U.S. and others to persuade purchasers of Iranian oil like China and India to stop purchasing Iranian oil and purchase other oil instead. Um, The question now is, in a low-price environment, does it make Iran more likely to dismantle their nuclear program? Um, That's a much tougher question. Bill Riley, Cuba's about to open up. Are we going to see an oil boom in Cuba? I think that um, Cuba has to be very careful in how it develops its offshore oil. They don't have any experience with it. They drilled three holes, unsuccessfully dry holes so far, and um, one of them is 18,000 feet. You know, this is significantly deeper even than uh, Macondo, the BP well that um, blew out in 2011, causing so much damage in the Gulf. They um, also, it would seem to me, ought to have a significant um, capacity for renewables. They're a very sunny country. 
And I would hope that they could learn from some of the experiences in the United States, in Nevada, in California, now in Texas, where you have utility-grade solar that provides very substantial amount of electrical energy. And, and, and not, we're not just talking small amounts anymore. I think Austin, Texas is getting something like 200 and some megawatts that it's committing for uh, 20 years at least down into the future. This is going to make a huge difference to places like Cuba. Bill Riley, ConocoPhillips, you were on the board of that oil company, has pulled away from the Canadian tar sands. Do you think that the lower oil prices are going to keep some of the tar sands in the ground? I think they're likely to slow the rate of expansion of oil sands because the opportunities, frankly, are so much better in the Permian and the Bakken and the Eagleford Shale plays in the lower 48. Uh, the lifting costs are vastly less in a lower-price environment. Uh, that and uh, the oil sands and also, I would say, the uh, offshore Arctic are much less attractive from an economic point of view. Jason Bordoff, climate people who think that one of the upsides of, of cheap gas, which makes it easier to drive more, will keep the dirty tar sands in the ground. Is that just a temporary thing or is that a longer term thing? No, it's a temporary thing. I mean, the oil sands resource is an enormous one. And over time, if oil demand continues to grow, you know, that supply is going to come from lots of places, including from Canada. And there are a lot of ways to get oil to market by pipeline or trains or barges or trucks or other things. You know, it may not be developed as quickly. It may get pushed back a little bit, you know, but, but over time that resource is there unless policy takes us toward a different place, unless it reduces demand, unless it puts a price on carbon. We're talking about oil and gas here at Climate One. Bill Riley's a former board member at ConocoPhillips and former head of the U.S. EPA. Our other guests are Kate Gordon, senior advisor to the Risky Business Project, led by Michael Bloomberg, Hank Paulson, and Tom Steyer, and Jason Bordoff is the director of the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University and a former advisor to President Obama. You can listen to this and other Climate One podcasts in the iTunes store, and you can join the conversation on Twitter using our handle at Climate One. Time for our lightning round. We're going to ask each of our guests today a yes or no question. Kate Gordon, Republicans have achieved more environmental protection over the past 50 years than Democrats, yes or no? Yes. Bill Riley? Yes. Jason Bordoff? Uh, I don't know the answer to that firmly enough to say. I mean, was thinking about President uh, Nixon creating the EPA, Clean Water Act, uh, President Reagan doing the Montreal Protocol, President, first President Bush doing the first cap-and-trade program. But I think it's important to look at the net impact, not the gross impact of any particular policy. And so the efforts from the Republican Party to push back against efforts to put a price on carbon or put in place meaningful climate policy. If you look at the net impact of the efforts by the Republicans versus the Democrats, then no, I think the Democrats end up in a better place. Bill Riley, you have a different view. I do have a different view. I think we all know members of Congress who believe in climate change, understand the science, but uh, are not supporting the carbon tax for reasons of constituency concerns and pressure. But I take a lot of encouragement from the fact that uh, 15 Republican United States senators did recently vote to recognize, affirm that humans are impacting on the climate. I think that's the kind of breakout that's very helpful to us. And I, I would go a little further. I wouldn't say that resistance to a carbon tax is a Republican or Democratic uh, priority. I'd be surprised if you could get a majority of Democratic senators to vote for a carbon tax in the United States. There are people I respect in Washington who think that day may come. I'm doubtful that it will come anytime soon. 
but I think it would be a productive, very productive thing for the climate. When some people hear ExxonMobil and other oil companies support a carbon tax, they have a little bit of a cynical reaction. Those companies say they support it publicly, but they have lobbyists inside Washington who are doing everything they can, Jason Bordoff, to, to slow it down. Are they playing a double inside and, and public game? I, I do think that there is, at least among parts of the uh, oil and gas industry, some recognition that uh, we can't just be against everything, but we actually need to start thinking about how to be for something. And relative to lots of alternatives, if we think that policies are coming on climate change, putting a price on carbon is the most cost-effective, the most efficient, the most direct way to do this. Language is important. Bill Riley? And um, phrases like cap-and-trade and climate change and global warming have become supercharged. So that uh, when you ask someone if they believe in global warming, you almost have to follow it up with a paragraph of explanations of what kind of thing you're talking about and say, oh, it's not that bad thing that everybody's against in the right wing in Congress. It's the fact that, you know, the growing season is longer now, maybe, or, uh, or spring comes earlier. And people say, well, yeah, yeah. And then the question is, well, who's causing it? And that's a little more tendentious. But the public is really speaking on that in many polling reports that I have seen, majority of the country does believe in warming and does believe that there's a human contribution to it as informed by mainstream science. I want to ask Kate Gordon about carbon risk, the idea that people who buy fossil fuel stocks or index funds have energy stocks in their portfolio that could um, blow up one day if the world gets serious on climate. Um, What happens to fossil fuel investments if there is a price on carbon and they become stranded, that's the kind of thing that increasingly fund managers are thinking about. If you go to these conferences of of fund managers and investors, particularly of pension funds, of universities, of big organizations that have diversified portfolios, they're starting to ask this question about whether they want to put all their eggs into the fossil fuels basket because of the risk of policy and also just, again, that inherent volatility of those sectors. Jason Bordoff, some universities and churches are saying fossil fuel investments are risky economically, perhaps morally questionable. Uh, Is that having an impact? Is it an issue at Columbia? There's a process underway that the president's leading and, and students and faculty are involved with to make recommendations about what the policies of the university will be. I don't know uh, where that will land. So if we think about a strategy to radically start lowering carbon in the way that we need to but are nowhere close to doing, coal is going to be the first piece of that. I also think there are a lot of steps that the industry can take if people work cooperatively that can make a big impact in the near term on uh, carbon emissions, reducing flaring, reducing methane leakage, trying to substitute gas for coal. So I think there clearly are important reasons to send a message that we need to act more urgently to put in place climate policy. But I, I also hope there are ways that NGOs and policymakers and the industry can work together to try to pick up some of the pieces of low-hanging fruit there, because that can have uh, an important impact. Bill Riley? As a member of the uh energy project of Bipartisan Policy Center, the two people who were most enthusiastic and and explicit about supporting a carbon tax were the senior executives of two major oil companies. So uh, at the time, I was surprised. Are Are they faking it? Most companies I'm aware of do anticipate that there will be carbon regulation, that it's in our future. They felt that for 10 years or more. In that sense, they're way ahead of the political process, but they have been preparing And the major oil companies have virtual prices, shadow prices, 
that they factor in when they make an investment, assuming specific, I think for one company it's $25 a ton of carbon tax, for, for, for Shell it's $75. So it's, it's not something that will take them by surprise or that they will be unprepared for. And some of the technologies that we will depend on will probably come from them. So I, I would not assume that they will be uh, always resistant to some of the most innovative approaches to solving some of these problems. I think if the incentives are right and we get the policies and the laws right in Washington, they will hew too and begin to help solve the problems. We're talking about cheap oil and gasoline at Climate One. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome. Hi, my name is Dan Matross. I run the Energy and Environment Program at the Canadian Consulate General here in San Francisco. Michael Bloomberg penned an editorial where he uh, suggested that uh, Obama make a deal with Canada whereby he trades approval for the pipeline in return for a climate deal. Should he pursue such a deal? Kate Gordon, environmentalists would howl and scream if uh, that happens, yes? Building the Keystone Pipeline is a decision to build out infrastructure that will last for decades. And we've seen with the highway system what happens when you do that. It's very hard to switch to new technologies and new infrastructure when you have something in the ground that's already massive and built and existing. Let's have our next audience question. Welcome to Climate One. If you look at the major oil companies, they still see us burning 120 million barrels by 2030, 2040. Do you think big oil is myopic in terms of thinking about potential technology breakthroughs, that sort of thing? Bill Riley? Technology breakthrough of uh, tremendous proportions and one that I think is going to come, and that is uh, a technology breakthrough that allows us to store energy efficiently so that all of a sudden renewables uh, no longer need, for example, a significant amount of natural gas to make wind power work, natural gas or nuclear, to... uh, to provide energy when the, when the sun's not out or the wind doesn't blow. I think that, uh, that the increase in fossil fuel use that's anticipated by most of those companies is exaggerated. And by 2050, I would be surprised if uh, we don't have a very substantial contribution from renewables, much more so than most of those uh, projections do anticipate. Next question. Welcome. There have been enormous cuts to uh, E&P CapEx. And a lot of those cuts have come from so those long-life projects, like the tar sands, for example, which you know, they have 30- and 40-year asset lives. So the low oil price today is actually potentially setting the stage for a significantly higher oil price in the future. I just wonder what your thoughts are. And CapEx is capital expenditure. Those reductions in both staffing and in capital expenditure on the part of the major oil companies worry me from another perspective And that is, more than a few people at the time of the disaster in the Gulf that BP had pointed to the fact that the previous era of the late 90s, for example, when oil was trading for seven, eight, nine dollars a barrel, resulted in the departure of a lot of very senior people, able professionals from the industry. They were given early buyouts, there were cutbacks. That happened, uh, I think, with consequences in the eyes of a lot of people and helped explain that we had fewer of the really best people who were on the rig the night that it blew, because a lot of mistakes were made. We have been discussing the price we're paying for cheap oil with Jason Bordoff, director of the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University, Kate Gordon, senior policy advisor to Risky Business, and Bill Riley, senior advisor to the private equity firm TPG. You're listening to Climate One.
America today is awash in oil. It's being shipped on tankers, piped across the landscape, and increasingly carried by rail. Heavier crude coming from North Dakota and Canada is more volatile, and several fiery derailments have caused concern about moving oil down the tracks. What is the safest way to get this fuel from the well to the refinery? And how long will it take to transition to cleaner fuels? I have with me now four guests who've been looking into fuel transport. John Avalos is a member of the Bay Area Air Quality Management District and a member of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. Jess Durbin Ackerman is with the Sierra Club San Francisco Bay Chapter. Tupper Hall is a spokesman for the oil industry. When this program was recorded, Molly Samuel was a science reporter with public radio station KQED. She's since moved to another broadcaster. Here's our conversation about oil on the rails, electric cars, and more. The economy relies on fossil fuels. It will for a long time into the future. Just Durbin Ackerman, isn't it better to get this from domestic American supply rather than from petrodictators overseas? What we're seeing right now is this transition to extreme fuels, and we're seeing oil companies try to invest billions of dollars in new infrastructure to be bringing those new extreme fuels to the refineries. And what we don't want is to lock ourselves into 35 or 50 years of new infrastructure that needs to be used in order to pay those bills. We should be spending that billions of dollars on clean energy to transition. Tupper Hall, extreme fuels? There's nothing extreme about the oil and natural gas that's being produced in tremendous abundance in the United States. We are in the unheard of posture today of being close to energy independent. We've seen a tremendous reduction in energy prices in the Midwest that has resulted in a huge resurgence of manufacturing. But perhaps most importantly, Consumers in the United States are directly benefiting from the energy renaissance that's taking place in this country. We are seeing crude prices coming down and consequently gas prices coming down. And that's because the United States is producing record amounts of its own domestic energy. And the only way that we consumers can benefit from that is to bring this product in on rail. So there are serious and legitimate questions about the safety, and there's tremendous effort underway to look at regulations and practices and make sure that that transport's occurring safely. Molly Samuel? Bakken crude, the crude from North Dakota, is more volatile. When, when these trains derail, they explode. There's also crude coming from Alberta, from Utah, from New Mexico. There's all kinds of crude coming in by rail, but, but where exactly it's going, we, we don't know. What is it about the Bakken crude that's new or different? I mean, rail cars have been coming in for decades, and no one really heard of, you know, there's not much fuss. There are different concerns with different types of crude, but it's the Bakken from North Dakota that we've seen, you know, there was an explosion last July in, in a town in Quebec that killed 47 people. There have been derailments and explosions in Alabama, in Virginia, in North Dakota. So we've just seen it's more volatile, and, and the train cars that are carrying it aren't safe enough. And what is the federal government doing about those train cars? The federal government has proposed new safety regulations, slower speed limits, improved safety on the rail cars, higher tech braking systems. How long is it going to take for these recommendations to actually come into place? Meanwhile, the trains are still coming. John Avalos, your view on this? My perspective is that uh, accidents happen. Accidents will happen. I grew up in a town called Wilmington, California. One of my earliest memories uh, is an explosion that had happened at the Texaco refinery. And uh, I saw a big ball of fire go up into the air. And uh, we were told that that would never happen. 
Uh, we're now doing extreme ways to get oil that is very harmful for the environment. So at the Air District, we take this very seriously. We just recently had the explosion at the Richmond Chevron refinery, and that put uh, thousands of people to go to the emergency room. And as we're seeing the dramatic increase in oil coming by rail, we have to make sure that there are safety standards in place. Just Irvin Ackerman, I want to ask you, there's a couple ways for the Bay Area to get oil. It can come in by rail, it can come in by ship or pipeline, right? So I think the Sierra Club doesn't support any of those. So what's the best way to do it in the short term? I feel like that is a totally false choice. We actually shouldn't be investing billions of dollars in new infrastructure that's not safe or that will cause harm and that will also contribute to climate change. You know, we're running out of conventional oil in the United States and in the world right now. And what we're moving towards are these more extreme fuels, tar sands, which to get one barrel of oil digs up four tons of concrete and dirt and also clear cuts pristine boreal forests in Canada. And then, you know, the Bakken shale, which uses very dangerous and flammable and cancer-causing fracking fluid, which is then included in the train cars that bring that oil to any refineries where it's refined. So neither of these sources, tar sands or Bakken, which is actually what most of the refineries are looking at switching over their crude stock to, are safe. So we shouldn't be discussing what's the best way to bring these unsafe fuels. And I think we should actually be investing these billions of dollars in local renewable energy, energy efficiency. We shouldn't even be discussing that. Pepper Hell, your response? Look, we can talk about what the future holds, but our members have an obligation to supply that market day in and day out. And so this terminology that's being used, I understand its appeal. It is not based in a recognition of the realities we face. We're going to need fossil fuels for a very long time. U.S. Information Administration forecast by 2040, 80% in their estimation of our energy supply will continue to be supplied by fossil fuels. So, I mean, it's one thing to advocate when you have no obligation to anybody to produce the product that they expect to be there when they show up at a service station tomorrow. That's the obligation that our members have, and they're committed to doing that as safely and efficiently and at the lowest possible cost they can. Can I? Uh, Jester Van Ackerman. Sorry, can I just jump Mm -hmm. in here for a second? I'm hearing a lot about how we're still going to be dependent on fossil fuels by 2050 or 80%. You know, we're going to still use fossil fuels by 2050. And that's actually, in California, not true. In California, we're decreasing our use of fossil fuels. But I think what Tupper is getting at is the fact that our refineries in the Bay Area are global players. And actually, the oil products we create, some of them are being exported. So they're not to be used here. And the point I want to make on that is that all of these decisions for new projects, they're actually to serve the companies and their global markets of oil products. And these decisions should be made to benefit the local communities. They should be in the best interest of the local communities. And what we're seeing, actually, is that they're not. If you're just joining us, Jester Van Ackerman is with the Sierra Club, San Francisco Bay Area chapter. Our other guests today at Climate One are John Avalos from the Bay Area Air Board and the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, Molly Samuel from KQED, and Tupper Hell from the oil industry. John Avalos. What I'm concerned about is that safety comes, comes last. It's always the, the changes that are happening, and then the safety measures will follow suit. The, the changes in the oil industry are being driven by the oil industry, and we're playing catch-up to figure out how we can protect the public and protect the environment. It should be the other way around. 
And the biggest challenge we have is pay-to-play politics. How much of uh, the money that comes into elected officials and people who are decision makers influence what they do. When we actually are able to change our politics, we could actually promote uh, environmental measures that are going to put the public and the environment first. Tupper Hall, do you think that industry self-regulation and self-action is enough, or should there be more? Does there need to be more oversight in some places on rail or refining, et cetera? We operate in the most heavily regulated environment in, in the world in California. Consequently, refineries in, in California are the lowest emitting refineries in the world and produce the cleanest burning fuel. And to suggest that we're operating in an unregulated market is, is not an accurate portrayal. Let's get a baseline in terms of, of climate. Is climate disruption happening? Is it caused by humans burning fossil fuels? Yes. What is the path forward? Is it ethanol? Is it biofuels? What's the path forward in innovation for getting a cleaner economy? Tupper Hall. Our view is the path forward is technology that will give people the sorts of mobility, the convenience, the comforts that they've come to expect is the only way you're going to bring this lower carbon future without having an enormous backlash on the part of people. They're getting up, they're going to work, provide for their families, and they have an expectation that they're going to be able to do that. And so providing them an an alternative to do that in a way that they can afford and integrate into their lives is absolutely essential. To talk about these things as if we're going to impose higher costs, fewer options, less mobility to people, in our view, is a loser. Absolutely a loser. But any economist would say there are costs of burning fossil fuels that are put on society at the hospital, you know, the drought and, and extreme weather. So shouldn't people who burn fossil fuels, like me and everyone listening to this in their car, pay for those true costs of burning fossil fuels? A carbon price. For the very first time anywhere in the world, California will regulate gasoline and diesel uh, sales under a cap-and-trade program. Now, whether or not people find that acceptable, who are the ultimate arbiters of this, remains to be seen. Jess Durbin Ackerman, your response to that in terms of the path forward uh, and and the impact on California drivers to the cap-and-trade system. Sure, and we actually just saw a poll from Californians which said they were actually willing to pay more for transportation fuels if it helped us with climate protection. So I think Californians are speaking for themselves here in this situation. There definitely has to be an equity piece to this. We definitely need to build that into the way that we're creating this clean energy future, but they know what it's going to take and they're ready to do it. Tupper Hall, one thing that people do to get away from fossil fuels, they drive an electric car. Is that a threat to the oil industry? No, I drive an electric car. I have a Chevy Volt. I also drive a race car and and I have a truck that hauls it. So, you know, this is a good example not to toot my own horn. Um, (laughs) Go ahead. Using the technology (laughs) that's the most effective. I have needs and I have recreation and I've adapted the available technology to fit that. But that was an expensive car to buy. I'm fortunate enough to be able to afford it. A lot of people can't. And so bringing that technology into a fleet of 38 million vehicles is going to be a challenge, and it's going to take a lot of time. I think I want to take a step back and actually get us out of transportation fuels because out of our entire greenhouse gas inventory, transportation is a big portion of it. But another portion of it right now is our electricity generation. And actually, the Bay Area is leading in a transformation to a clean energy economy in the electricity sector using a program called Community Choice Energy, letting local jurisdictions make their decisions about where their electricity generation comes from 
for all of the residents within their community. So we've seen Marin Clean Energy, which offers 50% and 100% renewable electricity to their customers, Sonoma Clean Power, and they also offer 33 and 100%. San Francisco actually started to work on their program called Clean Power SF about 10 years ago. The plan is to offer only a 100% clean energy option. So we're seeing a transformation, not just in transportation sector, but also in the electricity sector. And I think we need to talk about this in a much larger picture because there are lots of different moving pieces here. But what I'm trying to say is that we actually have the solutions we need to create a clean energy economy. John Avalos, what's the future of these community choice where people get to pick their power and can the utilities stop this? The monopoly utilities have tried to stop them. We can't seem to get our program off the ground in San Francisco. And for me, it's related to PG&E being based in San Francisco, and they have a lot of influence over elected officials and commissioners who play a role in blocking the ability to move forward on our clean energy plans. And so I know it's a matter of time that we'll be able to do that if we can change some of the politics around that. But the majority of people on the Public Utility Commission who were going to be supporting greenlining our Clean Power SF program voted against it. It was very unfortunate. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Yes. Um, it <clears throat> used to be that poor communities lived on the wrong side of the tracks. Well, nowadays, either side of the track is the wrong side. What possible guarantees can you give them that an accident is going to happen in their, in their neighborhood? Tupper Hall? Well, I think the question was, what guarantee can somebody provide a community that an accident isn't going to happen? And, of course, it's a rhetorical question. What we can guarantee, and it's happening today, is people who are a lot smarter than I am and committed to looking at what the existing regulations are and the existing practices are, are investing a huge amount of effort to make sure that the risks to those communities are reduced to the lowest possible point. John Avalos? There is a lot of concern that residents have about the safety, especially when we've seen uh, the derailments and the explosions that have happened, uh, Lac Megantic, Quebec being the biggest one. That was July of 2013, where 47 people died. Um, so people have a, a lot, great concern about derailments that happen as these trains are going through urban areas uh, and areas that are populated. 25 million people around the country are actually along the rail lines that will be used to transport oil from uh, North Dakota and other places. And I just want to jump in on that. Normally when we kind of evaluate new projects, we do risk assessments. From the oil industry's own numbers and the rail industry's own numbers, you know, their crude oil shipments are delivered safe 99.9% of the time. We have 7 million people that live in the nine-county Bay Area. That means we're willing to sacrifice 7,000 people or 1,000 per million. I don't think that that's an acceptable level of risk. Molly Samuel? Part of the concern with safety with, with projects that are on rail is it goes all the way back to North Dakota. And how do you assess that risk? An environmental impact report conducted by a small city, how does it grasp that? It's, 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 it's a challenge. So this is challenging lots of things. Let's go to our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, Colin Murphy, NextGen Climate America. Mr. Hull, earlier you said that technology is the way to achieve uh, long-term climate solutions. I know that WISPA has often found itself opposing several technology-promoting policies. Can you please tell me what sort of technology-promoting policies would be available and would be acceptable to WISPA? WISPA being the Western States Petroleum Association that you're part of. Tupper Uh, Hall. Every year, in increasing numbers, there are a great many legislative proposals made that energy companies underwrite or subsidize alternatives but compelling companies that deliver energy today 
to transfer or to take, to, you know, to confiscate dollars, to transfer to alternatives. It's not, a, it's not realistic to think companies are going to support that type of public policy. What if we just transferred the subsidies that the oil industry gets from the federal and state governments to clean energy? Would you not oppose that? That's not taking any money from the energy companies. Let's it's talk taking about subsidies. Funding. There are zero subsidies provided to the oil industry. That's a fact. There are tax breaks <laughs> and investment credits available to all manufacturers in the United States, and the oil industry takes advantages of those. We had the former chief economist of the World Bank here who estimated it was worldwide, Nicholas Stern, $500 billion was his estimate of subsidies to the oil and gas industry globally. And you know globally. how those are governments that are subsidizing Partly. the cost of fuel for their citizens. That is not, those are not subsidies. John Avalos. There are subsidies and there are subsidies. There are subsidies that are actually cash incentives and there are tax breaks. Uh, there's also a subsidy that I believe is actually uh, resistance from elected officials and decision makers from really applying uh, stronger regulations. Uh, and that's a huge subsidy that fossil fuel companies receive, utilities receive, that I think really uh, needs to be noted. We have been discussing traveling the rails with carbon cargo. John Avalos is on the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. Jess Durvin Ackerman is with the Sierra Club. Molly Samuels, a former reporter with KQED Science. And Tupper Hull is with the Western States Petroleum Association. This segment was underwritten by the San Francisco Foundation. Thank you for joining us this hour. Free podcasts and transcripts of this and other conversations on energy, water, and food are on our shiny new website at climateone.org. Please join us next time for another Climate One discussion about powering America's future. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. Alyssa Kerr is the assistant producer. The audio engineer is John Rieger with help from Will Llewellyn. The editor is Claire Schoen. Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is presented in association with KQED Public Radio. Mm-hmm.